Dr. Steve Weitzman is a scholar in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and his research specializes in the Hebrew Bible, ancient Judaism, and the origins of Jewish culture. And it is my great pleasure to invite him back to the show. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Steve Weitzman. So I, I don't know if you even vaguely remember any of our last conversation, but I listened back to it today, and we were all over the place, mainly because of me. Okay, I don't, I don't honestly remember too clearly, but uh, I will. Uh, I'm sure that I contributed to whatever, whatever uh, dilatory uh, yeah. quality it has. No, it was definitely me. It started with the Mishnah, or you explaining the Mishnah to me, and it ended with Rene Girard. So you can imagine that okay. that range there. Okay, I have a, I have a few. Uh, well, first of all, how was your trip? I think. Some time um, in between us, I think you. Oh went yeah, to... so we had a. Fa- if you're talking about the trip we took last summer, it was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we was did get family on the way back, but oh yeah, I was under the impression that was was that a research trip or was that a family trip? That was a combination of the two. I I okay. um, co-directed a kind of summer school for graduate students, so that oh, was nice. part of it. But then I also my kids. Um, I have 16 year old twins and they like Italy for different reasons. And so kind of just to kind of uh, give them a treat after a couple of years of COVID, hmm. we uh, went to, we went to Italy, which was really good. And how old are they? Did you say? They are 16. Okay. Nice. Well, that's a nice treat. It was good. Yeah. Cool. Um, I also think I remember you offline talking about doing a recent project on plagues, which I, Correct. of course, was really timely. Um, I hope you don't mind if I don't get to that right away. That's fine. But I think when you hear how big my contextualizing questions are, you'll you'll understand that we have some some groundwork to lay out. Okay. Okay. Selfishly, I am very interested in how the study of Judaism butts up with my understanding of Christianity. So I want to zoom in on what you explained to me is, is referred to as second temple Judaism. Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, would that have been the Judaism or the time from which Jesus would have come? Or was he after the fall of the second temple? He's coming. He's the temple still stands when he's born and when he, when he dies. And so he's coming at the kind of tail end of it. Okay. But both for him and for Paul, Paul was alive as well during the temple, time of the temple. Now, this might be a massive question, but I'm really interested in questions like what the state of Judaism was like at that time. And if there was anything about that state of Judaism that was likely to have produced a figure like Jesus, that is sort of a divergent preacher. Uh, And my understanding coming out of our last conversation was that this shift from second, second temple Judaism, which you sort of explained was sort of um, had an emphasis on sacrifices to rabbinic Judaism. That seemed obvious that that shift would create more preachers um, in that there was an emphasis on the rabbi as opposed to, you know, like the sort of exclusive nature of the temple. However, <laughs> Jesus was alive during second temple Judaism. So, I guess my first question is, 
what was Judaism like or what what would it have looked like at the time of Jesus's life? Is that way too big of a question? Um, well, it's certainly not a small question. Let's <laughs> yeah. put it that way. Um, well, let me sketch in a little bit because you raised a number of really interesting um, things to think about. Um, first of all, what we know about Judaism in the Second Temple period, so by this point, there are um, Jews living throughout the Roman world. So there are, there are Jews in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. There are Jews living in other parts of what, you know, um, at the time might have been called Palestine. And there are Jews, a big, big Jewish population in Egypt and large populations of Jews in places like Syria and Rome and other parts of the Roman world. So we're talking about um, Jew Jewish culture developing in several different environments. The common denominator for many of them is that they live under Roman rule, but there are also Jews living beyond Roman rule because there are Jews living in the city of, uh, well, living in Babylonia, the former territory of Babylonia, who never kind of went back from the Babylonian exile that's described in the Bible. And um, that, that community would continue there until basically the 1950s, when most of them migrated to the state of Israel. So there's a lot of variety. And then, you know, Jesus, of course, lived, um, you know, he's born and spent the early part of his career in the Galilee, and then um, goes to Jerusalem in the final stages of his life. And, you know, even if we're just focused on those regions, there's a lot of different kinds of Judaism that are developing at that time. So we know some of them from the New Testament itself. So Jesus encounters groups of people called the Pharisees, and he encounters um, people called the Sadducees. Um, he has a few meetings with people who are Samaritan. These are all different religious communities We're kind of within the tradition of the Bible. And, um, you know, we can talk about each one if you like, but um, there's a lot of varieties. So it's hard to, I would say the variety is part of the landscape that Jesus is operating within. And, you know, a lot of these different movements, obviously there's a temple and the temple has a priesthood and the priests have religious authority, but there are also lots of other teachers, kinds of teachers that are not connected to the temple that are in the world that Jesus would have lived in. So the Pharisees are, you know, a group of people who many scholars think they're the ancestors of the rabbis. And they are, they're teachers and they're popular teachers. They teach, you know, teach Torah. They teach, um, they have an oral tradition that they teach as well um, to the populace at large, just like Jesus did. They're very, they're similar in that regard. Um, and actually, one, you know, one of them was a sage named Hillel, and some of his sayings are very similar to the sayings of Jesus. Hmm. So um, I would say there are a lot of teachers kind of circulating in Judea. There's a lot of kind of prophet-like figures moving around um, who can like work wonders and prophecy the future. And Jesus is part of that mix and would have had it in some sense compete with them. Hmm. So I don't want to, you know, blabber on too long, but that's that's kind of a short answer to what what the landscape would have been like. Um, hmm. And 
what we've learned about these different kinds of Judaism, it's really, I find this very interesting that Jesus shares traits in common with a, a number of these different groups. So, you know, he, I said you know a moment ago that he he's similar to the Pharisees in the sense that, you know, he's a teacher who teaches directly to the kind of masses. Um, he, uh, he has views on the law, on the Torah that he shares and teaches about. He teaches in the synagogues that he, he comes across in his travels. And that's all very similar to to the Pharisees. On the other hand, um, you know, one of the great discoveries of the Second Temple period that scholars in the 20th century made was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, that's probably something we could talk about separately, but I'll just know for now that the Judaism that emerges from those scrolls is in some ways very similar to what Jesus was teaching and what the early Christians were teaching that followed him. So there's kind of, it's like a tapestry where what Jesus believed and what he said and what he taught intersects in different ways with what other Jewish teachers at the time believed and taught and spoke about. And I this I hope this is the last time I apologize for big questions because I think I have a feeling that they're all going to be really big. But um, the mention of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I, I, it's the first that I heard um, any reference of Jesus being similar to the Pharisees. I've never heard that. In fact, oftentimes I've heard people say things about Jesus possibly being in a scene because of things that sounded like you were alluding to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that even there's a jump there with the Dead Sea Scrolls maybe not even being in a scene community. But um, I think, I thought that wasn't totally, they're not sure that they're Essenes. Are they sure? There's debate about the identity of the Dead Sea Scroll community. Okay, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm curious right now that it's like composite identity of Jesus in these different communities. How yeah. How much of that is a product of, or like, I find myself being up against this problem here where if you try to figure out who Jesus might have been, you also have to contend with how he was recorded. Correct. And there might have been, you know, a scene influence in the recording of the Bible there or the Gospels. There would have there might have been Pharisees, you know, I don't know how, how you even say that word. Pharisaic. Pharisaic. Pharisaic influences on is does that something that scholars try to parse out? I don't know if that's yeah they do so that's you know a real methodological challenge is that you know we're reliant on these gospel accounts which are written by different people with different points of view and describe things somewhat differently based on the point of view of that particular author and they're all written after the death of jesus you know they're written you know 30 40 50 maybe 60 years after the death of Jesus. And, you know, the Gospel of Luke, for example, if you just look at the first verse of the Gospel of Luke, he says he's working with traditions that he inherited from people who were eyewitnesses. So he's not an eyewitness. He's working with what he learned from people who saw things. So it's kind of second second order removed. Um, So scholars have to figure out, you know, 
how do we account for the discrepancies? What can we corroborate? What's consistent with what we know from other sources about the time period? That's part of the industry of New Testament studies is just trying to figure out what what the historical Jesus would have been like and what would he have actually said and taught and what's actually just a super imposition on him of what the gospel writers wrote or believed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a New, New Testament scholar, and it's like a whole field into itself, but um, yes, that, that keeps scholars pretty busy. Now, the earliest source we have for Jesus is not the Gospels, it's Paul. Hmm. And Paul's letters, are, you know, some of them are maybe written by other people, but some of them seem to be authentic. And they're, you know, Paul lived, you know, 20 years after the death of Jesus, so he had an experience of Jesus, according to the book of Acts, but... Um, he was also kind of a little bit removed from Jesus. So we don't have any contemporary sources for Jesus with no eyewitness people who saw the crucifixion or saw what Jesus did or heard what he said himself. So yeah, there's archaeological retrieval, not, not archaeological, but there's some retrieval that has to happen as a result. I, I find myself wanting to say being an Old Testament scholar, I hope you don't take offense to that or I ho hope that's not a misrepresentation. Being a Jewish studies is can I say Old Testament scholar? Is that fair? It's perfectly fine. I mean, of course, Jews don't see the Old Testament as the Old Testament. So right, exactly. Yeah. You know, when I teach a class, I I tend to refer to it as the Hebrew Bible, but okay. it doesn't, doesn't yeah. I, I just want to juxtapose, you know, you mentioned you're not a New Testament scholar, but being a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, is it interesting to you or does it strike you at all this challenge? Of trying to uncover the historical Jesus, knowing all the nuances, or at least being familiar with the nuances of what Jewish culture looked like at the time of Jesus, does it almost seem like a fool's errand trying to like parse out? I, I mean, it could even just be a possibility that he was is this composite figure, right? Does that ever come to mind? Uh, or yeah. is it... <clears throat> sorry. Oh, sorry, I didn't. No, uh... that full stop. Well, I want to say, first of all, even if every single thing that is said about Jesus in the Gospels is not true, even if that were the case, and I don't believe that to be the case, but even if that were the case, the Gospels would still be a tremendous historical source for understanding early Christianity, because you can tell a lot from them about the beliefs of the people who wrote them. These are the earliest Christians that left a written record. So, you know, I think it at some level... It's almost as interesting to know about them as it is, you know, as from an historical point of view, mm. as it is about the historical Jesus. Um, but I'm also interested in that. I mean, I, Jesus is the most famous Jew who ever lived. Yeah. So um, from a just from a Jewish studies point of view, this is a tremendous resource for understanding Judaism at that time. Mm. And, uh, you know, and Jesus was a Jew and his disciples were Jewish. And just because a uh, different religious tradition came out of their teachings, that doesn't mean they're not part of the Jewish story as well. So I just, and also it's a really fantastic story. I yeah. mean, it's an amazing story and it's unlike any other story we have from that period. Hmm. And it's, you know, even though I'm not a Christian, I, I understand uh, to some extent the power of that story. So for people who are interested in just really powerful stories, it's, Fascinating from that angle too. But again, as as a scholar of the Hebrew 
Bible and, and certainly the Jewish culture at that time, you would know much better than me, but how many people like Jesus or the character of Jesus like possibly existed at that time? It has to have been a massive number, right? Or at least not as rare. It, it could not have been as rare as the Bible makes it sound. I think I think right, a cultural so. a cultural Christian or a cultural Catholic would just imagine that Jesus was one of one, right? And then you even alluded to, you know, Jesus possibly having to even the character of Jesus having to compete with other yeah. similar characters. And I've even heard theories of of sort of like John the Baptist possibly being a rewritten um rival of sorts, you know, and it would be in the interest of the New Testament scholar the New Testament authors to say that he sort of handed it off, handed off the baton to Jesus and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we, um, well, our major source for that period outside of the gospels and new Testament is the, um, histories of Josephus, the hmm. first century Jewish historian who was a participant in the Jewish revolts that led to the destruction of the second temple. And who, after that was brought to Rome or went to Rome, and wrote um, several works that survive. Um, one, a history of the Jewish revolt itself, and another, a history of the Jewish people from the beginning in the Bible to Roman times. And so those two works are our are, are major written account, a major written source for the history of the Second Temple period. And Josephus, in his description of kind of the Roman period, first century, describes other figures who are very, they seem similar to Jesus. These are um, people who work miracles, who prophesy, and gather around them followers. And there's a re really interesting pattern that emerges, which is, you know, the Romans who ruled Judea at that time, they, they, they were very paranoid about rebellion. They didn't have, like, firm control over Judea. They didn't have a lot of troops stationed there. Um, and their, their control wasn't complete. So they're very kind of paranoid and whenever they got wind of someone they thought might challenge their power they would eliminate them um and that and that's what they do with a lot of these kind of prophet like figures they just crush them and crush their followers and that's what they did with Jesus and his followers they executed Jesus and they dispersed his followers and that that reflects a pattern in what the romans do with all these other similar Figure. So that's, you know, that's one reason I think that the Gospels have got to be rooted in some kind of genuine history, because the course of what happens to Jesus is so similar to what happens to other prophetic figures in that same time period. Hmm. Does that lend itself, though, to an argument that it could have been, you know, after after the after end of these crucifixions or, or as you said, sort of eliminations of a prophetic figure that someone sits down and says like what if that you know what if these people came back or what if this one person came back you know that so to me that to me yeah. makes it even seem less you know less novel well that is um you know the way scholars of religion kind of approach that is you know they are you familiar with the term cognitive dissonance yeah, if you ask me to define it, though, I would only be able to tell you it's like a, it's just a gap between, just like a chasm of ignorance. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's close. I have a better I mean, definition. 
uh, it's like when you have two contradictory beliefs mm-hmm. and uh, you know, our mind doesn't like contradiction. So it looks for ways to, um, when you have two contradictory beliefs, it looks for ways to kind of make them consistent with each other. Mm. So this is a theory. This is psychological theory that scholars of religion have applied to Charlie Christianity. And, and basically the idea is this, that, you know, the followers of Jesus, he was the Messiah. He was, you know, this figure that would, had come to save them and who did these amazing things and taught these amazing things. And, you know, they've been waiting for him for a long time. And when he came, he was supposed to bring a kingdom of God and save them. So they believe that. And they believe that passionately. And then he gets executed. Hmm. And so how could the person who's come to save us be dead now? Um, and so that's cognitive dissonance, two beliefs, <laughs> or, you know, a belief that's kind of in contradiction to, you know, an experience. Yeah. How do you square that circle? How do you square that circle? And so one way you square the circle is to say, well, yes, he died, but that was because that was part one of a larger mission mm. and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to, he's going to finish his mission and rescue us. Um, so some scholars believe that the idea that Jesus was resurrected was a solution to a cognitive dissonance that his followers had after his execution. Hmm. And you see that paralleled with like Elvis, you know, Elvis died, but Elvis, you know, is a celebrity. Like how can this great celebrity have died so terribly? So there's, you know, people who believe that Elvis still still alive, you know, so you have that phenomenon in other communities. That's fascinating. What an interesting analog. Yeah. That that, that messianic story. The, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that a entirely Jewish product? Because is there a type of Judaism that's focused on the Messiah, or is that underlying all forms of Judaism? So that time, the many uh, not every Jew would have necessarily been. So Messiah comes out of. Um, the word Messiah, which is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it means an anointed one, refers to the way in which kings were designated as the king. So there was, mm-hmm. instead of crowning them with a crown, um, a prophet would anoint them with oil. And so they came to be known as the anointed one. That was like a title for the king. Mm-hmm. So it appears to be the case that the, early, the kind of messianism emerged out of um, a desire or a hope that early Jews had that their the king of David would one day be restored. That that dynasty came to an end with the Babylonian exile, and this is another example of cognitive dissonance because in the Bible, in the chapter Second uh, Samuel, chapter seven, there's a story about how God, you know, says to David, you know, you you and your descendants are going to be kings forever. So, and then, but then the kingship of David, that dynasty gets wiped out by the Babylonians. So how Mm. do you you square that circle? And so the way people squared that circle was they said, well, yes, the king is not with us right now, but he's going to come back and reestablish his kingdom Mm. and and reestablish his rule. So people were hoping and expecting a restoration of their king. And um, that was before Jesus. And there were the Dead Sea Scroll community, for example, you know, was awaiting, or, you know, even may have believed that the Messiah had already arrived and um, actually believed in two messiahs, a, 
a kingly messiah and a priestly messiah. So I was expecting two figures. And so there were different kind of messianic beliefs. And um, what distinguished Christians is that they believed Jesus was that figure. Hmm. So that's why other Jews said, no, that's, he can't be it. He, he got killed. He didn't do the things sure. that worked for the Messiah to do. Yeah. So that's probably why, you know, Jews who had heard about Jesus didn't always accept him. But, you know, his followers believed that he was indeed that Messiah. So they they were they were kind of building on an already existing tradition of messianism. Interesting. And then that that Jewish rejection of, you know, Jesus being the Messiah, would that have led to this Christian push, you know, this sort of pagan continuity theory of like pushing into, I guess what, traveling west? Traveling west into Greece and yeah, that's hard. You know, that's you know, Paul. You know, where do you draw the line between belief? You know, Paul. Paul writes about his beliefs. He believed that God had always intended to um, be the God of both Jews and non-Jews. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a while he focused on the Jews, but with Jesus, he was expanding again to what had originally been the case, which is to be a God of all peoples, regardless of their background. So that's what he believed. And, you know, do we take that at face value? Do we suspect that he had some kind of practical ulterior motive? That's, mm. that's yeah. you know, tough to draw that line. Yeah. Interesting. Cause it's again, that cognitive dissonance theories and it, it really scales in this story where you can imagine he has a problem to solve. <laughs> Where, you know, Jews that he might be trying to convert or whatever are saying, well, you know, how is how could the Messiah have died? Right. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so it might be easier to sell to somebody who doesn't believe that. Right. Or, um, you know, at the same time, it's also possible that he sincerely believed that, you know, this um thing that jesus accomplished should not be limited to one people but it should be shared with everybody so hmm. um, and you know there were a lot of a lot of people left out of roman society a lot of poor people a lot of slaves a lot of you know women um and you know christianity did a very good job speaking to those people hmm. and um you know, it's hard to draw a line between what's was sincere and what's was pragmatically self-interested, you know, what's tactical, what's it's hard. But I will say that, you know, we're always managing cognitive dissonance, always. And, you know, I I think about the followers of Donald Trump, for example. I mean, they think he's sure. a great president, but then he keeps saying these things that are really kind of obnoxious. And, you know, they're constantly having to like figure out ways to reconcile the kind of double experience they have of him. So, yeah. Or even the vote. Right. Yeah. And that, that's a fascinating, I've never heard of that theory and, and I'm starting to see it more and more Yeah, in the five minutes that you just introduced it. Um, we, we mentioned this the last time we spoke and I'm sorry if I'm going to make you repeat a bit of this, but I'm, I'm interested in, I think, as I wrote to you, this sort of tradition of, prophecy in the jewish tradition i remember you said it stops at some point where the god stops speaking to the jewish people through prophets and then instead 
I forget exactly how you put it, but it was sort of, you know, became all the books are all the books of the Hebrew Bible are written by prophets. And that now, you know, people that would be prophets or something like that would be their prophecy or the way that they receive the word of God is through their interpretation, not directly from God. That's how the rabbis see it. So the rabbis believe that, yeah, prophecy came to an end shortly after the destruction of the first temple. And that's why you don't continue to have biblical books composed because mm -hmm. those are all written by prophets. And since there are no more, no more prophets, there's no more books that achieve that status. But um, the rabbis believe that um, God revealed to Moses an oral Torah as well that was transmitted from Moses to Joshua, from Joshua to the prophets, and from the prophets to the rabbis themselves. So it's mediated because it's coming through an oral tradition, but they believe they continue that tradition and they expand it through their interpretation. So um, for the rabbis, God revealed himself in two forms, the, the written Bible, what I was calling the Hebrew Bible, but also this oral Torah that um, is the core of what we call the Mishnah and the Talmud. Okay. And, and so maybe just to back up a bit, what is a prophet in the Jewish tradition? Well, a prophet is, some, is someone that God designates to speak on his behalf, in his voice. So it's kind of like a spokesperson. Interesting. Um, like the president has that, you know, spokesperson. So God reveals himself, reveals his words, speaks directly to the prophet, and the prophet transmits those words and sometimes writes those words down. Um, so they reach they reach their audience. How many prophets were there, or is that a is that too big of a number? Uh well, there are a lot of prophets. So there's the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible has different sections. So the first section is the five books of Moses or the Torah, which is books attributed to Moses. Um, then you have what's called the former prophets. That's first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And you know, first and second Samuel are called that because they're attributed to the prophet Samuel, but they also describe other prophets. Hmm. who don't leave books behind, like the prophet Nathan from the time of King David. Um, or later on, you know, there's the prophet Elijah and Elisha, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. So there's prophets that are described in the former prophets that don't write things down and don't leave things behind. And then you have the latter prophets, which actually is itself divided into two sections. You have what the, what's called the major prophets, which are um isaiah the big ones isaiah jeremiah and ezekiel and then you have 12 minor prophets who leave behind books as well like amos and jonah and hosea so you have the five books of moses you have the former prophets and then you have 15 books of prophecy in the latter prophecy there's a lot of a lot of, a lot of stuff yeah so so the they're not all named after prophets like is hagar is that uh, well, Hagar was uh, the kind of um, maidservant of Abraham. I think you're thinking Haggai. I'm thinking of a book that you referenced in our last conversation that that you mentioned isn't isn't often read. Um, well, there's a book of Haggai, Malachi, 
Okay. These are, are kind of small little books that are those know. prophets or they're just references. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, is it? I, I don't know why I think this, but did a lot of the prophets get killed by their own people? Did any of the prophets? Was that was that the fate of any of them? Because that seems like that would be another. My understanding of the prophets was that they didn't seem to last very long. And that they were sort of controversial, but then would be celebrated later. And I'm thinking of there's, of course, the quote from Jesus that. He I think he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one of them, you're building statues or something to prophets who your fathers have killed i might be misquoting yeah, so there's a tradition of prophets being persecuted because they say things that people don't want to hear yeah so that seems like a strange well because they say exercise in cognitive truth to power so you know elijah um there are some prophets you know there, there are some prophets who run into problems with the king because they uh, denounce the king's sins. So, yes, they get persecuted by the king. There are other prophets who get into conflicts with other prophets, sure. prophets with contradictory things. There are prophets that, uh, you know, Jeremiah had a big problem because he was telling the people of Jerusalem, you know, the Babylonians are coming and you need to surrender to them. And a lot of people in Jerusalem said, no, 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 no. That we're, we're going to fight them. We're going to, you know, fight, defend our independence. Mm. So it's like, it's like you had a prophet in the Ukraine telling the Ukrainians surrender to the Russians. You know, obviously people are not going to like that very much. Um, so yeah, they, they, they did get uh, in trouble. And uh, that's the tradition that, that's almost like a mark of being a true prophet. Like, you know, you're a true prophet. If you're saying what people don't want to hear, yeah, that rule, of, that rule of thumb does doesn't scale to our modern times, right? <laughs> well, that's not what politicians do. They do that, right? Also. Well, I'm saying there are plenty of people who say things that we don't want to hear. Who I don't, we would be very slow to name them prophets. I imagine. No, I mean the other thing you have to be claiming to speak on God's behalf. So that's the other. Yeah, that's a bold. Yeah. Well, when people do that today, we tend to think they're they have mental health issues or something. So, yeah. So I know that you are a as I as we established in the last conversation a secular scholar. Correct. But you're also, I believe, married to a rabbi. Correct. So please forgive me if this question is too direct. As a secular scholar, what do you do with that? There seems like there's an inherent problem with prophecy where, I mean, if if they got into so much trouble, who even wrote these things down? And like, why weren't the books burned or, you know, it just seems like such a strange dynamic where who's to say which one, who's to say which prophet who said the things that they don't want to say or gets written down, right? Yeah. Well, we unfortunately don't know very much about that process, but. Yeah, that seems so mysterious it is but but remember that the political establishment at that time which were the kings they didn't survive they were mm -hmm. they were wiped out by the babylonians so um interesting the so ones you, who survived were the people on the margins 
you know, the people who didn't have power were the ones who survived. So we're, that's the point of view that, that got transmitted. You know, think about, you know, Christianity, like, right? You know, Jesus was executed by the Romans. His followers were persecuted by the Romans. But they went on to create a community that survived and outlived the Roman Empire. So people today are a lot more sympathetic to Christianity than they are to the Roman Empire, even though at the time the Roman Empire had all the power. So, hmm. but but similarly, there's this sort of delayed effect, right? Where I imagine with not knowing much about this mechanism of prophecy or how prophets are named. Let's imagine they, you know, prophet says something, let's surrender to Babylon or whatever. Um, the king doesn't like that, kills them. If Babylon wins, right, then maybe somebody on the margins is like, hey, maybe that guy was, <laughs> maybe that guy was on to something. And yeah. then, you know, 20, 20 years later, 30 years later, in hindsight, writes it down and says, you know, you know that that guy that we killed or it was killed in front of us or you know that was killed wherever he he might have been on to something he might have been a prophet is that what we think the process is it could be i mean we have uh you know i mentioned josephus just how why do we have the writings of josephus because josephus so josephus started out as a commander of the rebels against the roman empire Okay, yeah, and then he turns coat, right? Then he, then he, then he turns, he betrays the rebels, and he joins the Romans, and he becomes their translator and their advisor, and he kind of kisses the butt of of the general, who then becomes an emperor, and he moves to Rome, and he gets imperial support. That's how we have his writings because he was a traitor hmm. to the Jews of the time, and allied himself with the Roman Empire. So maybe we have the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah sided with the Babylonians who mm. won. And therefore they allowed him to survive. And his opponents got wiped out. Yeah. So then, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is too personal of a question. And I maybe I'll just lead with, it doesn't sound like God is speaking to these people the way that you know, strictly speaking, the way that, you know, somebody who's literally understanding that phrase might think that then. Um, As a secular scholar. So, you know, secular scholars struggle to talk about God because God. Yeah, I'm afraid to ask you, but like, do you think that, I mean, how do you view the prophets as someone who who has, you know, more than a foot in, in both worlds? And you can decline the answer. I'm sorry if that's no, too personal. I don't, I don't. I don't mind it. I mean, I, I. God is beyond the methodologies of scholarship. God, isn't observable. In a way that, allows scholars to draw conclusions about God. Hmm. He's not. Um, he's not studyable in the way that you can study, an elephant, or you can study. Um, a building. He's not accessible to the tools and the methods and the sense perception that scholars rely on to draw conclusions about the nature of reality. Um, and I'm not a philosopher, but philosophically, 
Um, and this is one of, you know, something that the philosopher Immanuel Kant, you know, demonstrated in the 18th century. Philosophy can't really take you very far in understanding God either. There are certain questions it cannot answer about God. So I'm agnostic about God. I don't claim to know the ultimate nature of the universe. I don't in any way belittle people who believe in God. I hmm. um, That's not an experience I've had. So I have to be true to what I understand the world to be. But I understand there's different ways to experience reality. And I respect people who have a different experience of reality. And I, I even envy them in some ways. But um, but I'm just, you know, I'm trying to understand the world through the the best way I know how, which is um, these methods that scholars have developed for investigating the nature of reality. Does that make sense? It does. It's a good answer. You, you said something. The way the way that you answered that reminded me of something I heard at some point. <laughs> of course, you're you're here in part to verify my bad education of the Jewish tradition. Mm. There's like a bunch of different words in the Jewish tradition for God. Sure. Um, is it? I think of like Yahweh and I think El, Elohim, um, Elohim, and then because there's all these, you know, like I think like Mikael and Gabriel and Israel, right? Those are they angels, all, yeah. Yeah. Well, they all they have L in the name, yeah. Yeah, and he who wrestles with God and he who right. is like God or something. Um, was it was it the case that early on? That, God was like a thing you don't even say because because in the way that you were saying it's kind of unnameable. Where now we you know now we like assign a pronoun and it's like we're talking about our neighbor right. In the Jewish tradition early on, was it? It almost seems like a paradox if that were true, that the Hebrew Bible and of course you know the Christian Bible are interested in describing this thing that early on is is said to be impossible to describe yeah well the definitely the god of the bible um how do i put this he doesn't let just anybody get close to him he's very protective and if he lets lets you get close to him it's a very um it's a real sign of divine favor you know, he hides on a mountain. Maybe hides is not the right word, but he's he doesn't let people, he doesn't let the Israelites just come up Mount Sinai to see him. He says, no, nobody can see me. If you see me, you know, that person will die. He doesn't like to reveal his, I mean, the name Yahweh is like his first name. Like you really have to be on good terms with him to know that name. And he doesn't reveal it to everybody. He just reveals it to select, to a select group of people. So um it's like he's uh a celebrity that won't let just anybody get close to them he's really kind of protective about who has access to him and who he interacts with and so that's what he's kind of like in the hebrew bible and whenever he reveals himself to somebody or speaks to somebody that's you know that's a very deliberate decision that he makes that shows a lot of favor to that individual
in in certain Christian traditions, there's this idea that God is in all things, and of course, that's not exclusively a Christian idea. Um, I'm thinking of like the the ground of Brahman or something. Mm-hmm. Is is there any similar thing in the Jewish tradition? Obviously, in the Jewish tradition, God created the world, so in a way, you know. I don't know. I don't know if it's going too far to say he's in that, but he created all of it. Um, in the way that you were describing God, there it sounds there's like this exclusivity to it in the Bible, yeah, the Bible. yeah, yeah. But then there's also this in other traditions, at least there's this like sort of permeance. Um, is that anywhere in the Jewish tradition that it's sort of <clears throat> everywhere? And maybe what you're describing is like, yeah, to see God in totality is very, very rare, but then glimpses of it is less rare. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's many different conceptions of God within Judaism. They're developed, Hmm. and which is, of course, true of Christianity as well. And and so you've got everything. You've got philosophers who think that God is accessible through the intellect, through philosophy. You've got mystics who have different techniques for cultivating a kind of direct experience of God, a very intense direct experience of God. You've got, um, you know, you've got Jews whose ideas about God are influenced by Christianity. You've got Jews whose ideas about God are influenced by Islam. You've got Jews like the philosopher Spinoza, who is what we call pantheist. He believed that God was in everything. God was everything. God was basically nature. So. Judaism doesn't have like a fixed theology that says, you know, God is this, this, and this. It's, there's a lot of room for variety. And so as a result, you've got many, many different theologies within, within Judaism. Um, And uh, of course the same is true of Christianity, but like on steroids because there's so many more Christians. So, um, you know, in the early centuries of Christianity, You know, there are Christians who said that, you know, God was, um, God was divine and Jesus was human. You got Christians who said God existed first and then Jesus was created later. You got the view that prevailed, which is that they were created at the same time. Um, You've got Christians now later on regarded as heretics who said, you know, Jesus is good. The God of the Hebrew Bible is bad. Um, so within Christianity, you've got many, many different kinds of, of different understandings of Christ and how Christ related to God the Father. And in Judaism, you've got not as much variety because you don't have as many Jews, but you have a lot of variety. Hmm. In our last conversation, we talked a little bit about this, this transition in Judaism after the second temple was destroyed. Uh, and I found myself not really sure about this. I just want, I don't know if it's an easy answer, but what's the difference between the temple and the synagogue? So in Judaism, there's one temple. A temple is literally the house of God. It's where God takes residence, or at least a part of God takes residence, and where people go to interact with God through sacrifice, making gifts, um it's where the ark of the covenant was located in the time of the first temple which is a kind of throne of god where god resides so it's literally like a house of god it's like literally his address 
A synagogue is a communal gathering place where Jews come together to pray and read from the Torah. So you don't make sacrifices there. Um, it's, it's considered a holy place because the Torah is considered holy. Because in the synagogue, you have a Torah scroll. But that, that's what makes it holy. It's not that God is like sitting there. It's that you have the Torah there. And the primary activity is to you know read from the Torah and, to, and have communal prayer. So um, a synagogue is really just a kind of community prayer center. And that's different from the temple. And what is that? The idea that the second temple was destroyed and that is the idea that it will never be made again or that it will at some point be made again? So, you know, Orthodox Jews, religious Jews believe that the Messiah is still going to come. And when he does, or it does, whatever the Messiah is, he, the temple is going to be rebuilt. And um, there's a very small minority of Jews who believe that we need to start the whole process earlier than that. And they're preparing hmm. uh, for the temple to be rebuilt very soon. That's not the majority belief, but that's the minority belief. And But it's still tied to the return of the Messiah. So... Um, A lot of Jews are not expecting the Messiah to come any second, but, and that's true of Christians as well, but there are, of course, uh, some who believe that it's going to happen in any moment. So hmm. um, there are different ideas about that. But the reality is that the site of the temple today happens to be the site of one of the holiest sites of Islam. And you can't have a temple there. I mean, you have to remove what's there now for there to be a temple. That would cause a religious war. And, you know, 95% of Jews are not interested in that. So um, I don't think it's likely that's going to be rebuilt anytime soon. Interesting. What does that do for the religion that an actual experience of God in the temple. And I remember you saying that my idea that maybe would be that you could go experience God in the, in the temple, but you sort of corrected me and said, you know, of course it was pretty exclusive. Like not everybody was able to just go to the temple, but some people I guess were, what does that do for the religion or the faith that a direct encounter with God is now no longer possible? at least not through the temple. And now there's this focus on interpretation of the text. Yeah. I can't tell if that in my mind, if that makes it like less mystical where you have a direct experience in the temple or almost more mystical in a sense where, you know, now, now there's this emphasis on not necessarily individual interpretation, but this, you know, interpretive exercise. Yeah. I think it cuts both ways because, you know, the temple you know, most Jews would not have gone into the temple. Hmm. They're not, they weren't allowed into the temple. So they could be in an outer courtyard, but they couldn't go in the temple. Only the priests were allowed into the temple. So, you know, they bring a sacrifice, but they give a sacrifice over to the priest, and the priest would be the one who offered it. So it wasn't really a direct, for most Jews, it wasn't a direct experience. And whereas reading the Torah, 
and interacting with God, you know, learning about what God's intentions were by interpreting the text. That's something that every Jew can do, you know, as long as they know how to read. Um, and, you know, that's also the religious experience of a lot of Christians. A lot for a lot of Christians, their experience of God is reading the Bible. That's how they experience God. So um, that is a big change that happened in religion. You know, after the destruction of the Second Temple, you have the emergence of religions that are no longer sacrifice-centered, no longer temple-centered. And it happened in Judaism, but it's also true of Christianity, and it's true of Islam as well. These are all religious traditions where um, sacrifice is not the primary way to interact with God anymore. So, um, you know, obviously that appealed to a lot of people because it's what prevailed. And, um, yeah. Um, how are you on time, by the way? I, I can... I probably have to wrap things up because I... I have to go to work early tomorrow. So to... Understood. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe we should maybe we should put a pin in this, but just to so that it's on the record. So when I re-listen back to it, when I reach back out to you, whenever, um, with enough time for you to to maybe regain some patience with me. I don't know. <laughs> I uh, about that. Great question. I'm really interested in this idea of. I read your. I I read your your article on Rene Girard. I read it about a year ago and I didn't have a chance to read it in anticipation of this uh, conversation. I should have, but I'm really interested in sort of picking apart. It sounds like you have a profound, at least in the article, profound understanding of Girard. And of course you, you know, you keep it at arm's length. Um, that is, you don't subscribe to it. Yeah. And yet I can't help but see these really interesting through lines of sacrifice obviously in judaism but then maybe even more obviously in christianity with the the sacrifice ultimately of jesus um so yeah i'll give it a few months but then i'll reach back out to you i, I think that's okay. where i want to that's where i want to pick up yeah i mean it's really uh sacrifice is really fascinating and um yeah Christianity, in in some ways, it replaced sacrifice, but in other ways, it kept sacrifice central. Yeah, um, central. So it's really, really interesting. Absolutely, cool. We'll just keep the dialogue going. Looking forward to it. And uh, your questions are great, so don't don't feel any uh, don't second guess yourself about that. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, if I weren't such an old timer, I would be able to stay up later, but. No, understood. I appreciate any time you can give me. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. We'll be in touch. All right, Steve. Thank you. Have a good night.